Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Hi, welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history of the devil. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is my partner in heresy, Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you doing today? You know, I I have to say I'm a little bit upset today, Klaus. Oh, <laughs> do tell. Yeah, um, well, I don't know if you know this, but I'm the co-host of this amazing podcast called Seven Heads, Ten Horns, and... My podcasting partner was like, let's do a sinful cinema series. And I was like, that sounds amazing. Yes. Here, let me contribute a couple of ideas. Um, And, you know, we got to watch one of my British murder mystery, you know, miniseries, which I was quite excited about um, in a previous episode. So thank you for that. Mm. And then you were like, hey, I found a couple that kind of fit in with my, you know, cop priest you know thesis that i've been thinking about a lot lately and i was like oh that sounds amazing yes i definitely want to hear more because i know you've been doing some research and writing on the subject um and then you you suggested end of days and deliver us from evil and i just didn't know the movies so i didn't know what i was getting myself into Mm -hmm. but i i think you're amazing and wonderful and you have wonderful taste in movies and tv so i was like oh this will be great this will be great um, and now I'm mad at you. Yeah. Yeah. I think, right. Like why subject someone to these films? It's like, not, not a bad question. These, yeah. I will say like, I think that this is a really, this is a really ringing endorsement. I don't think either of these movies is like terrible. They're almost like not bad enough to be noteworthy they, they sort of they're, they're almost uh, a little too mediocre I guess but I will say like the reason I wanted to bring them together is that like crime thrillers police films and also demonic horror films are these very mainstream ways of thinking about and representing evil and telling stories about evil characters so I was wondering what would happen if you took the cop film and the exorcism film and brought those together. And fortunately, other people in the illustrious motion picture industry have had that notion and have tried to do it. And so I wanted us together to evaluate the fruits of that labor in bringing these genres together and try to make sense of what they're doing. So that's that's why I subjected you to this. Whether you found it to be a pleasant experience or not, uh, I guess, the, the listeners can infer what, what you think about these movies. But yeah, or but yeah could, that was the idea. You know, we could also rely on the data and just take a quick peek over at Rotten Tomatoes to notice, just to notice. I mean, there's no shade being thrown here or anything, but that End of Days uh, has an 11% score based on professional <laughs> reviewers. Um, so just, that's another way to go. But but in all seriousness, Klaus, I... I think there's a lot to talk about in both of these movies. And even though I'm giving you a lot of grief right now, I am, I've been looking forward to our conversation for the past few days since I've watched these movies, not just to complain about them, but to talk about the critical issues they raise around attitudes about the police, attitudes about the clergy, how they get intertwined in these really interesting and disturbing ways and what use um, Hollywood makes in each of these films of um, 
esoteric knowledge about evil. I'm interested in that as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we'll have plenty to discuss there. So I think we'll just get right into the sort of chronologically the first film we'll be talking about today, which is End of Days from 1999. And You'll talk about this, I guess, in a little bit, but this is uh, a Y2K theme movie. So sort of taking the uh, sort of, I don't know if moral panic's the right phrase for Y2K, but this general anxiety about like the end of the millennium, technological failure, potential like world altering or ending side effects of the technological failure, that sort of thing. So that's the sort of uh, cultural context for end of days. It stars, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger as the ex-NYPD turned security contractor Jericho Kane. Quite the name, quite the name. Gabriel Byrne is in it as an eye banker who's been possessed by the devil. Uh, Arnold's Jericho's sidekick is played by Kevin Pollack. There is a sort of muttering, menacing or sort of like uh, sort of like prophetic priest played by Hollywood icon Ron Steiger, Rod Steiger. Robin Tunney plays Christine York and Udo Kier is one of the baddie Satanist doctors in the background, sort of like B-movie legend Udo Kier. Interesting to note that the starring role was originally written for Tom Cruise, which really would have given this a totally different flavor. <laughs> uh, and... Um, it's directed by Peter Hyams, and his other notable films include Capricorn One, which is a. It's interesting to me that that's part of his his oeuvre, like because it's about a it's about the faking, like a deep state conspiracy to fake the U.S. space program's landing on Mars. From May 1978, so it's like a it's like a a conspiracy film. O.J. Simpson's in it, so that's one thing he's known for. But like this is part the Capricorn One story is part of the the, the denialism and conspiracy theories about the the idea that we never landed on the moon, that NASA never went to the moon. So Capricorn One is sort of like the film that like almost prov- provides the script for that conspiracy theory. Outland, Sean Connery is a sheriff on. A Jupiter Moon solving a mystery. It's supposed to be great. I want to see it. I haven't seen Outland. But also, so the Hyams big Hyams like a nineties heavyweight. Sort of did some Jean-Claude Van Damme films, Sudden Death, Time Cop. Uh so yeah, like a, a real nineties, like sort of muscle-bound freak of the directing scene. Ending up with this assignment, pushed by James Cameron, apparently, ending up with the assignment of doing end of days when some other uh directors of the moment like sam raimi so sam raimi and guillermo del toro were offered end of days but turned it down so we have the sort of the the uh the 90s standby you know reliable and steady peter heim stepping in to do the film so that's a little bit about like the sort of production i think it basically boxed its budget was 100 million and it made two hundred twelve million. So again, it did make money. Uh, it was it was not it, despite the fact that it has twelve percent rating on you know sort of Rotten Tomatoes. It did it did do some box office. I remember getting renting the VHS when it came out or DVD and seeing it. So I I, I was I was uh, subject to this as a, as a younger person. 
so that's a little bit by way of like who's involved and the production let's get into the plot briefly into the plot (laughs) yes how exciting okay so first a note on jericho kane i did want to mention because i hadn't really thought about the name together jericho probably most famously is a city whose walls came a tumbling down right klaus and Mm. Cain being the the brother, the child of Adam and Eve, who murdered his brother Abel and um, was cursed ever after. So the association with violence and sin sort of together and and the idea of being connected to a city whose fate is uh, in question. Maybe those are two things to think about with that name. But getting to the plot... Um, Okay, so we start with a flashback to 1979. The film is set in 1999 and is actually released in 1999 on the eve of the millennium, as you said. <clears throat> but 20 years before... The, di- the, day, but the day before Thanksgiving, it comes out. 11-24 in 1999. So aiming for some of that box office Christmas time magic. Yeah, so that it could, Weird. I think, place third that we- opening weekend. But still, they tried. It's fine. In 1979, 20 years before most of the action of the film takes place, we have the birth of a newborn baby girl. Christine York is her name in New York City. And um, the Pope is involved in protecting this baby, we find out. Um, and there we have a sort of double view of, view of the Catholic Church in this movie in general. There's the benevolent Pope who's trying to protect her. And because... She is foretold to um, have sex with the devil on the eve of the millennium. And she must be protected, according to the Pope, to keep the end of days from happening. I'm very confused about why the Pope wouldn't want the end of the world to happen. But apparently that is the Pope's official position. There's also this competing group called the Knights of the Holy See or the Knights, the Vatican Knights, um, which Vatican don't actually Knights, yeah. refer specifically to any real group that I could find, um, though there are organizations with similar names. Um, and these folks are hell-bent, if you will, on bringing about the millennium, on bringing about the end of the world. And wait, no, that's no, not No, they right. want to kill her. They, they want to kill her. her. Everyone agree- is agreed that the end of the world is bad, and they just want to kill yes. her. Okay, yes. to um, prevent her from having sex with the devil and fulfilling Their, their symbol is literally a knife through the heart, and they're supposed to stick their, like, the knives yes. through her heart. <laughs> yeah. They have like, these little pins with, like, the heart going, the knife going through the heart. And they're supposed to be, like, Masonic, Vatic- like, Masonic yep. Opus Dei people. It doesn't make any sense. Like, it, no. they're, 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 they're Masons, and they're in the Opus Dei. Like, I, I, I don't know. I no, I, I think it was just a nice, convenient mashup so that maybe they wouldn't offend any actual group. I don't really know. Yeah. But in any case, I mean, offense, avoiding offense may not have been a motivating factor as I think about the movie as a whole. Um, so then we get Satan. Who is Satan in this movie? We have this disembodied CGI shape. Dragon. I couldn't really make yeah. it out. You think it's a dragon? All right, drag. I'm going to go with dragon. I like it. <clears throat> yeah. And um, it decides to, um, of course, in the men's room of a fancy restaurant, decides to possess an investment banker um and so our our satan incarnate in this in this film is uh, a wall street investment banker right this is pretty great um that's <laughs> gabriel <laughs> Byrne. Per- yeah perfect for the role yeah. perfect perfect casting there um so 
What happens next? There's also a priest. Um, <laughs> sorry. How, how do you even do? How do you even do with this? I don't even. Know. How do I talk about this? Um, we have Thomas a, Aquinas. <laughs> the priest's name is Thomas Aquinas, and he is out to murder Satan. But we don't know it's Satan yet, so we just have this sort of renegade, um, shabbily dressed figure, whom we later find out is a priest named Thomas Aquinas, um, and then we meet our. Um, our hero, right? Our hero is um, Jericho Kane, and he is, as Klaus said, a former NYPD cop who is uh, now private security, and he's been hired to protect the Wall Street banker, who is, unbeknownst to him, literally Satan, and fr from this priest who's out to kill him. <laughs> Sorry, but can I ask can, can I ask a question about this with the plot? Were you clear on how to, uh, Father Thomas Aquinas knew that Gabriel Byrne was the devil? That why he was going to kill him in the first place? That like I was thinking back about today. I'm like, how did he even know to shoot that guy? No, yeah, you know, no, nobody. There, there may knew. be no answer. No, uh, no, no, no. There was there was no answer there. No answer needed. He just <laughs> he knew Klaus. He knew he was he had mystical knowledge. He muttered things about the thousand years ending, you know, and whatnot. So he had some special spiritual knowledge. Um, the he was connected to the Vatican, which clearly was concerned for the safety of the girl. I don't know, but there was no indication that they knew who Satan was. That anyone else other than no, Tom, I think Thomas Aquinas knew. Pretty pretty massive hole in the plot there. <laughs> okay, uh, well, <laughs> we, we tried. We tried. Um, so Aquinas gets arrested um, after the, a dramatic scene, um, and he's captured. And um, it, is that when he goes to the the hospital klaus he's is he yeah. injured in the uh, in the capture yeah. okay so then yeah. that happens oh my goodness because arnold just like shoots him you know like that's that's well, it's an action movie you, you know, know so it's gotta happen so then in the meantime um jericho and his his partner in security uh bobby is his name go to investigate um the apartment of the priest and they find all this weird stuff including his tongue Jericho is told by the priest as he's arresting him or handing him over to the police that this, you know, the thousand years has ended, the dark angel is loosed from his prison, something like that. But later he finds out from his uh, cop friend, Marge, who is still on the force, that the guy had no tongue. So then he and his partner secretly go to investigate Aquinas' apartment where they discover the tongue in a jar, which is weird, and then also some messages and symbols written in blood on the walls. Yikes. They go to the hospital where Aquinas is and discover that he has been um, crucified on the ceiling and he has these tattoos or these uh, scratched into his skin are some messages um, in Latin, which and then also there's a phrase in English, um, which they figure might be, say, Christ in New York or maybe something else. Um, but eventually they figure out, they look for names in the, you know, police database and figure out that it's actually maybe this woman named Christine York. So they go after Christine York, go to her apartment, and lo and behold, 
there's a lot of action going on. They hear bad guys, and I'm going to use the phrase bad guys. Uh, bad guys are, are inside the apartment, and so they go in to rescue her, and that's how they meet Christine York, right? So Christine York is the person um, who the the, the um, who is foretold. She's the one we discover later who's going to be impregnated by the devil um, to bring about the end of days. And so... Um, how do they get her to the priests? Um, they take her well, to the church at some point. Yeah, like uh, after Arnold fights, they fight off the Vatican Knight guys. Yeah. Then he goes back in to talk to her about something. He like grabs one of her books and then the Gabriel Byrne investment banker devil shows up, blows, apparently blows up Bobby Chicago and oh, is yeah. like sort of trying to get her and... Arnold helps her escape, and then they end up with with the priest. They end up, end up back with Father Kovacs, and uh, that's that's sort of how he like gets more into this uh, this conspiracy about this woman who's supposed to be the bride of the of the of the devil to father the antichrist right and she makes this critical choice am i going to hang out with arnold schwarzenegger and i'm going to hang out with the priests and she's like i'm going to hang out with the priests they seem to know what they're doing with this whole you know end of days business whereas he this is just some like guy with muscles and a gun so she yeah so that's her choice and then like basically the the vatican knights appear and try to kill her arnold stops them and there is a scene that we didn't talk about it doesn't really matter we don't have to talk about it, but uh, we can talk about it later about like about the sort of last temptation or the like sort of the yep. temptation of, of Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The temptation of Arnold. We'll, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. Um. But, you know, like basically like the it like the devil is able to get a hold of Christine with the help of like zombie Kevin Pollack and like Arnold is literally crucified by the devil. <laughs> He's, he's strung up yeah and and like this is one of the things i think we'll talk about but like he's strung up and like the devil's like oh i want you to see like the end of the world you're gonna see like the gates of hell open and we're kind of like but aren't you just gonna have sex with this woman like that's just gonna cause the end of the world right there like i thought this was about producing the antichrist like how is Arnold supposed to be up there for 30 years to watch everything that's happened? Like, <laughs> that doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah, the, the sort of prophecy is, is incredibly thin. Um, it's very light on any, you know, relationship to people who actually believe this stuff. Yeah, or the Book of Revelation or anything like it. But in the end, we, we get this um, Arnold Schwarzenegger gets uh, <laughs> possessed by the devil after the investment banker's body, you know, gets too too badly damaged to continue yeah. on. So then he, um, Arnold gets uh, possessed and then um, he, through his amazing willpower, sacrifices himself on a statue of the archangel um, Michael, who has Im Im improbably, who has a real sword. And so he impales himself, yeah. killing himself, so that the devil can't use his body to, you know, impregnate Christine or whatever he's going to do next. Um, and thus preventing, at, just before the stroke of midnight on January 1st, preventing the end of the world and everyone except for Arnold Schwarzenegger lives happily ever after. The end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So lots of plot twists and turns. I maintain that this movie would have been 
almost a classic if they had shaved off like 30 minutes. I felt like the last half hour was just like, you know, was was superfluous. They could have just cut it down. It would have been better. If it were like closer to 100 minutes or 90 minutes, like classic, I think. That's my, you know, not not like great, but like, but like in terms of like entertainment value, I think like pretty high. But yeah, like I think we're going to just sort of take a closer look at some of the moments that we felt like really defined the film. And for me, the opening bit we get with uh, Jericho Kane's character, he's like ready to commit suicide. He's about ready to shoot himself in the head. But then his his happy-go-lucky pal Bobby Chicago shows up and interrupts that. And Arnold slash Jericho is a heavy drinker, has been using alcohol to deal with the trauma of losing his family to a contract killing. And he goes from the point of suicide. And like, of course, this is like the, the realism of the film where like someone can just be like, oh, I'm like so depressed. I'm at the end of my wits to like cracking jokes and doing whatever. But the, the this has the scene has like the the best breakfast shake of all time when Arnold's like sort of like trashed through an apartment. He's like he's like stumbling through with a cup of coffee and a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. And he just like dumps like p- like pizza leftovers Chinese leftovers, Pepto-Bismol, coffee into a blender, and, like, hits blend and drinks that down. Um, Totally amazing scene. Totally amazing. Weren't they just trying to one-up the Rocky, you know, breakfast shake? Yeah. yeah, I think. And I I will say, I think they succeeded. That was one of the best parts of the film for me, really. So. Yeah, he's like, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, or something like that. Lots of lots of like Arnold, great Arnold sound bites. This movie. So like, yeah. I want to talk to you about Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good, right? I was like, <laughs> I've like, never heard a student want to with that level of earnestness want to talk about Aquinas. So exciting! Yeah, that was like quite the like Christianity one hundred and one day. Like, it really Ar- was. You know, Arnold shows up. I want to, I want you to tell me about Thomas Aquinas. You know, <laughs> it's like okay. Uh, so this is a trope that carries over across the films is Thomas Aquinas. Not only is he a mystic priest cutting out his tongue, keeping black cats in ref- empty refrigerators with uh, pictures of the Antichrist or whatever. He's also an elite assassin. He like everyone in this film, it's 1999. Everyone is dressed as if they've raided the Matrix's costume department. To sort of take their cast off trench coats and and use those for for their <laughs> costuming, so Thomas Aquinas, Frere Thomas Aquinas is is no different. He is equipped with a trench coat and a sniper rifle, and we have the uh, other amazing Arnold quote: "Why is a police trying to assassinate the Wall Street banker?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> like he keeps coming back to this point. Like it's just crazy to me. God ordered a hit on an investment banker. And he's talking to Father Kovacs, and Father Kovacs is like, yeah, so? God wants all Wall Street bankers to be assassinated by drunken, tongueless priests. Um, Really just, you know, stellar stuff. But Um, I feel like Arnold is speaking for all of us in that that point where he's asking why, you know, it's great. I'm like, he's at his most relatable. Exactly. He's he's basically saying, why does this film exist? This makes no sense. And we're all like cheering for him. It's great. <laughs> right, 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 right. The other moment I was really, in my favorite parts of the film are like kind of the physical 
comedy moments. Like this was like Arnold's whole thing as an action hero. He was obviously he was like the Mr. Universe and he was Austrian, but he also had his like little one-liners. And the physical comedy part is at its height when Jericho Kane is trying to he's like he's trying to help Christine York like escape and it turns out she's been adapted by a family of Satanists who want, who've been like grooming her for her role in the birth of the Antichrist. And so he is confront they're both confronted by her surrogate mother, who was one of the nurses who delivered her and like whisked her away to like be like tested to make sure she was like appropriately demonic in some some fake ass Satanist ritual. Okay, but we have to talk about the snake blood that the baby was suckled on. I mean, that was that was good, right? That's how they established, yeah. right? She mm-hmm. had the Omega good. tattoo, and yes. she was able to drink snake's blood, and yeah. everything was a go. <laughs> so this woman confronts Christine and Arnold as they're trying to escape, and um, I was just laughing out loud through this entire scene. Like, this woman, like, this sort of, like, matronly nurse, Miriam Margoyle, she kicks the shit out of Arnold. She like throws him around like a rag doll, and I I just it, it was it's amazing. It, whoever came yeah. up with that idea was a total genius to see like Arnold getting beaten up by like a retired nurse. Like yeah, I, yeah, I could watch that all day. Here for that. Here for that. Yes, right. So that's like sort of like what I thought was like sort of the lighthearted touches of the film that I that I appreciated. The main idea that I took away from the film or one of the main ideas was that like criminals, mentally ill people, people who are unhoused or homeless are like demon possessed. Like that people who are like the the deviants of society are all like carrying on the work of the devil. And it one scene that really brought this home for me was when uh, Satan-possessed investment banker Gabriel Byrne goes to kill Thomas Aquinas. For like, why he cares is like sort of beyond me. It's like, oh, like, whatever. But he goes to make sure he's really, really dead. And there's a there's a cop guarding the this sort of wing of the hospital, and Gabriel Byrne's like, oh, I I like I know you're a child molester. Like, you can't keep me out. Like, remember who you serve. And the cop is like, oh yeah, I guess you're right, and lets him through. <laughs> and, really strange i feel like this scene encapsulated the demonization of like crime and and the sort of deviance perfectly like it implies that like people like child abusers deep down inside they know that they serve the devil they know that they're demonic and like i don't know like that idea that people who are on the outside of the law who are like sort of doing like destructive things like they all know, but like you can sort of extend it to other kinds of deviant groups that the Christian right, for example, or like what used to be the mainstream opinion considered to be deviants, like queer people, like that, like all, like there's a whole, you know, or, or, or sex workers or whatever, like that all these people like know that really they serve the devil. And like, there's a really sort of dangerous politics at work there that the people who are on the wrong side of the culture wars or, you know, are grouped together with people who are, are criminals and, like, they're all in this kind of demonic legion that's, like, assaulting America. So, yeah. I, I For me, like, that scene really just encapsulated how 
demons, criminals, deviants, people who are mentally ill, they're all like, they're pre-conscious, half-conscious, or fully conscious of the fact that they are part of a Manichaean war that is just like the sort of the weird like culture war of, of the United States. When we get to our second film that we're going to discuss, uh, we'll, we'll talk about a scene where there's a distinction between sort of first order and second order evil, um, the kind of primal, original, demonic evil, and then this sort of like, oh, bad stuff people do. And this scene really illustrates the movie's take on the connection between those things, between the evil people do and the source of ultimate evil, that it is somehow natural yeah. that a child molester is not, uh, you know, bent on satisfying uh, what are essentially selfish appetites um, that are there for whatever reason they're there, um, but instead is connected to a much wider world of evil. The one question I have about your thesis and your interpretation of this, Klaus, has to do with the white collar criminal mm. and the sort of that is the most interesting to me element of this particular mix because the rest of it feels so consonant with this kind of um family centered reagan pol conservatism um and the wall street investment banker you know representing greed i suppose incarnate feels a little out of step with the rest of it um but lends a kind of, maybe lends a veneer of legitimacy to a kind of catalog or collection of, um, of deviance and sin um, so that it's not quite so obvious who's being targeted here and that they are just sort of rejects um, of social outcasts, as it were, because he's not, I would say. Um, but that exceptionalism yeah. could also be explained by the fact that he's Satan. He's sort of the upper crust of the evil ones, right? So that's the one who gets in, um, his body taken over by Satan. Yeah, and like, I think from the right and the left, like the investment banker, Wall Street, there are different ways of thinking about the damage they do. Hmm. And from the right, that's usually a kind of anti-Semitic, like uh, world conspiracy of Jewish financiers version, uh, and from the left, it's sort of just looking at like how capitalism works and what part finance plays in that and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I think like it is interesting, right? He's not like the, the the devil isn't like a motorcycle punk or like a serial killer, right? He's an investment banker, and I think that gets at it's sort of. I don't know, masquerading as kind of class conflict analysis or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I, I think you're right. I think it is about like kind of giving the Prince of Darkness some some sort of like cheesy glamour or something. Right. I think yeah, like the Gordon the Gordon geckofication of, of Satan. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to also share some of my um, shall we say favorite moments from the film. Uh, the first actually has to do with what we're talking about, the devil becoming incarnate in a Wall Street banker. Um, but then his first action, once he has a body, is to leave the men's, the men's restroom, go back into the fancy restaurant, um, go up to a woman in a dress, grab her boob, make out with her, and then leave the restaurant, which then inexplicably explodes behind him. It's just... Um, Kind of right, and it's odd. like if, if this is what we're dealing with. Like, how is anyone going to win if, like, he, like he's just like, well, I just, I, I did that, and then I blew everything up. It's like, okay, like, so you're 
omnipotent like what's the how's how is the plot of this film going to go <laughs> Ooh, actually that's an interesting question as as to what the powers of satan are in this film um so we know that he is a tempter and we'll talk a little bit about that that so like a kind of biblical devil he his one of his major roles is uh convincing people to join his side by offering them things um and so he and he has does have significant powers to offer but he's also um dependent on the material circumstances of this prophecy um, that we mm -hmm. that remains so vague about needing to have sex with this woman to bring about a very unclear end of days, other than it will be a restructuring of the world um, and he will be in charge. He does mm -hmm. uh, talk about that in, an, in the temptation scene, which we will talk about. So right. the next scene I want to uh, mention is we're in the church basement, Christine and... Um, Jericho have taken refuge in the church and meet Father Kovac, who takes them into the basement, which is <laughs> set up like a kind of reading room in the library, you yes. know, subterranean reading room in the library. But also there's this stigmatic woman. She's got the stigmata. She's like crying out um, the third one this week, they say, which I just love. Um, and that's the scene where we get this um, choosing of the sides. Um, where Christine says, I'm going to try my luck with these guys. They seem to know what they're doing in a way that the cop can't totally um, fill in the blanks. And that's going to, we'll talk more about that a bit later. Um, but that a regular ex-cop in this, in this case can't solve the case without some sort of crossing um, the boundary between cop and priest. And we'll talk about how that comes about. The next scene that I really enjoyed was about the number of the beast and sort of very heavy handedly um, squashed into a millennial, like sort of Y2K moment. So um, it's between um, Father Kovac and Jericho, and they're talking about um, the number of the beast. Um, and is it, isn't it 666? No. In dreams, numbers often appear upside down and backwards, so 666 becomes 999. Like in 1999, the year oh. of Satan's return. Um, and that's when we learn that that number is not accidental. That even though we all thought that the Gregorians um, created their calendar based on the birthday of Christ and then um, figured that as, as zero and, and went from uh, forward and backward in time from that date. No, in fact, they had access to, through their astrology of all things, they knew the most... <laughs> I'm just like, really? Uh, they figured out when the end of the world was happening um, on this particular night and then created their calendar around that, around New Year's Eve of 1999 mm -hmm. and the coming of that millennium. Um, I just I just loved it. It made no sense at all, but it kind of gestured towards some biblical um, uh, 
moment, a moment in the book of Revelation, which I appreciated and made it fit into this Y2K panic, which was, I think, uh, ridiculous, but also awesome. There's a great part where they're going through Aquinas's apartment and Bobby Chicago like sees references to the Revelation passages like scrawled on the walls or whatever. And he sees like it's 27 about like, you know, the verse about the unchaining of, of the beast or whatever, or the dragon. And he's like, what? And it ends in a football score. <laughs> 27. <laughs> that was really funny. <laughs> Amazing. But okay, it's also so that I- thing you were saying about like the 666 being the 999. It's like they're like had like this really like Cliff Notes version of Freud's dream works. Like that, like the, you know, the interpretation of dreams where things get distorted and, and moved around. It's like they just took the number and flipped it upside down. <laughs> It's like, it's a little more complicated than that. Right. It's, it's like you flip it upside down. Then you add a thousand years for no explicable reason, except that the yeah. millennium didn't happen that first time around. I don't know. We're or they're suggesting that this happens every thousand years. Like every thousand years, like this whole scenario works its maybe, way out. Maybe so. Maybe the devil came. This was the second t- go around. I don't yeah, know. After 999. Yeah. The phrase end of days, though, maybe it was a failed millennium. Maybe just like this one, someone foiled yeah. the plot. Maybe Jericho, this is the, this was only the second appearance of Jericho Kane. And he'd been here he before. He reincarnated. He was yeah. reincarnated. Yeah. With his old timey yes. name. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the the last favorite scene of mine was the temptation of jericho the temptation of arnold um which was primarily the devil goes to his apartment and is like hey listen you me we have a lot in common let's make a deal here i want to know where this girl is so i can impregnate her and bring about the end of the world you want to hang out with your family who died um, because you're such a good cop, you were such a good cop, you testified against these dangerous people, and then they came after your family and murdered them. Um, and so I'm interested in that moment because of its sort of uh, the primacy of the nuclear family, of course, again, um, part of the moral aesthetic of the film. And and, and the other, both films, I mean, both films. Right, sure. absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's this, there's also a temptation about power, um, which, and here we get a little bit closer to the final temptation of Jesus in the desert. Um, when Satan offers him, you know, a, a view, a mountaintop view of all the kingdoms of the world and says, you know, you can rule over all of this if you just, you know, worship me. And Jesus is like, no, thanks. Here's the Bible verse. See ya. Um, but uh, in this, the version of it in the temptation of Jericho here in our film, um, we have him saying, uh, well, wait a minute. Why would I want to bring about the end of days? That sounds really bad for me. I mean, how am I going to you know, have this life with my resurrected family if the world is ending? And Satan says, think of it as a new beginning, a change of management, and you'll be right, with, right there with me on the ground floor. It will be so cool. Um, <laughs> That's literally what he we're, said. We're gonna we're gonna disrupt the industry, bro. Yeah, you know? exactly. It feels so corporate speak. It feels actually sort of presciently. It feels uh, very Silicon Valley. Um, you know, uh, like there's this new startup that's about to happen, and he wants him to. to this is new startup. It's called Hell. <laughs> it's called Hell. You should join me. <laughs> it's a new. It's a new uh, like cyber real estate development firm. Uh, yeah, exactly. And and to me, that was the 
probably because it's more consonant with <laughs> I have nothing against do I have nothing against no I do have some critiques of Silicon Valley um I think it's the version of of demonic temptation that's probably most consonant with my own politics thinking about uh, systems thinking about large corporations thinking about um power as it operates and how it affects um the material conditions of various classes of people and so you know wow listen to me i sound really marxist today i, f I blame that on you klaus um good good so you're a bad in good you're a good influence on me i suppose and uh yeah. so i think that's why i like that scene um but also at least it had this kind of biblical echo which gave me something to talk about so there you have it i love that scene because when arnold's like Oh, I mean, it has the other incredible Arnold line, which cannot go be go unremarked. Because Arnold's like, Arnold doesn't go for the deal. He doesn't go for the temptation. And there's like a whole like dream sequence where his family's back to life. But then of course he sees that you know the, the sort of the dream sequence of them being murdered and like, and and that sort of thing. And the devil's using this sort of like carrot stick to try to persuade him to join the new hell tech startup. <laughs> and Arnold's like not going for it. And Gabriel Burns like, well, like. This could go really bad for you, and Arnold's like, "Compared to me, you are fucking choir boy." <laughs> like one of the a line my brother and I would say to each other for like decades after having seen that movie. Um, I like the Spice Girls line in the scene where he, where we have Gabriel Byrne going, "Tell me what you want. Tell me what you really want, and I'll give it to you." Yeah. Um, yes. So tell me what you want, what you really, really want. And uh, <laughs> it was 1999. So uh, right there, you go. Go figure. Yeah. So let's move to our next film of the day, Klaus. Deliver us from evil, aka D U F E or Doof. Doof. Um, I'll be referring to it as Doof. For the rest from of the henceforth, we'll re be referred to as Doof. The uh, award-winning, I don't know if it won any awards, 2014 film directed by Scott Derrickson, who also did. Oh, are we ever going to watch that? The Exorcism of Emily Rose. I feel like we kind of have to. We could do that okay. in Right. We're supposed to watch Right. It's also supposed to be terrible. Anyway, um, Scott Derrickson, who um, directed Exorcism of Emily Rose, as well as Doctor Strange. And it is a Jerry Bruckheimer film. Of course. Um, <laughs> because of course it is. How could it not be? If you saw it, you would know. Um, it stars Eric Bana as Ralph Sarchi. And I got so confused. Everyone kept calling him Sarchi. I thought they were calling him Sargi, like <laughs> Sergeant, uh. but like for short. Um, so that's a real person. This is supposed to be based on a book, actually, by Ralph Sarchi and some ghostwriter, I guess. I don't know. Anyway. Yes, um, yes, yes. And it's supposed, but it's not actually. Um, they did write a book and he did start teaming up with an exorcist, a Roman Catholic exorcist, and they hang out together. Um, but I think that's as far as the connection to the book actually goes. It stars Edgar Ramirez as Mendoza, our, um, <laughs> non-collar wearing Jesuit priest. We'll get into that. And Sean Harris as Mick Santino slash jungler. <laughs> <laughs> jungler is the... As far as I can tell, completely made up name for the demon, our starring demon of the film. Is he from the jungle? Is he a juggler? And it got mispronounced and he's like part clown. No one knows. So. Right, right. 
Um, wow, so, what's yeah. the story? What's the plot of this amazing film, Klaus? So let's, let's go through it. If End of Days is a Y2K movie, the cultural historical context for Deliver Us From Evil is the second Iraq war. Uh, so it's set in 2013. And the main plot revolves around three Iraq war vets who stumbled into an ancient tomb. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this we, we we've seen the story before the ancient tomb ancient mm. ruins like we have oh, yeah. this in the exorcist the ancient tomb motif in oh midnight mass so the ancient tomb yeah. in midnight mass where the yeah. the vampire demon thing is hiding so yeah ancient tombs watch out for ancient tombs folks because they are very dangerous so uh these three vets are exposed to something in the ancient tomb it turns out it's a set of creepy latin inscriptions with quote-unquote persian pictograms <laughs> and it's sort of just like i'm like the, the the sort of the plot secret isn't even worth belaboring the idea of the movie is that there are these uh paint like this this sort of latin secret phrase is like written on a wall and that creates a doorway to demons and so these vets go back and they start up they're discharged for like trying to kill a chaplain in the army but like it gets like pushed under the rug and no one cares so then they go into business together it's like the american dream you like go from like being possessed by demons in the army to assaulting priests to starting your own painting firm in the outer boroughs of new york city and so they do that and the places where they do their jobs creepy things happen for for starters uh, a mom throws her kid into the lion's den after one of the painters paints this thing in the in like really close to her and that's uh, Santino aka jungler the jungler himself uh, so a lot of the movie is like the detectives who um, as Ralph Sarchi and his partner who's just like there to beat people up butler butler Joe McHale plays butler Ralph's partner um, so they they're trying to figure out why this like what this painting is what it means they're also coming to grips with the fact that Sarchi has these sort of this what what he calls his radar his sense that like when really sort of really disturbing stuff is is going to happen and through his encounters with Mendoza he starts to understand that he has the power to sort of intuit the presence of demons he has a kind of of spiritual gift that way and so a lot of the movie is basically trying to crack the code of these lat these scary latin inscriptions that open doorways um trying to find the possessed house painting iraq war demon vets sarchi's own family being menaced by demons uh, notably and hilariously like in the form of a owl stuffed animal that starts ominously rolling towards his little girl and and so like i don't know like that's that's basically the movie it's it's a lot of of him trying to team up with this jesuit priest to try to crack this spiritual crime what were some moments that you found to be really revealing about the aesthetics and rhetoric of this film, Travis. Yeah, so I mentioned this when we were discussing our last film before we got to Doof. And this is this conversation between Father Mendoza and our heroine, 
heroin. <laughs> no, and there are no Arch- heroines in this film, my friend. <laughs> there are no heroines. And Eric Bana, what is his character's name? Sarchi. Sarchi. So between Sarchi and Mendoza, um, where Mendoza lays out this distinction between primary and secondary evil. Um, but here it's used a bit differently than how I was discussing it with reference to the last film. Here, it's not about continuity. Like, oh, if you do bad things, you know that you're actually um, the servant of the devil and you would, you know, acknowledge that. Here, it's like, listen, you're a cop, you, you're a cop, you are an expert in this sort of secondary evil, the way that people do bad things in the world. You may be less familiar with this primary evil. This is the land of demonic possession, that sort of thing. But because Sarchi is a lapsed Catholic, he will, he will of course remember, um, Mendoza says, that in Catholic teaching, there are very specific signs that indicate the presence of an evil spirit. Now, Klaus, I don't know what your Catholic education looked like, um, but I don't know that this is covered in great detail in the catechism. Um, there is, however, a, there's been a 1999 update to Roman Catholic exorcism uh, directions, if you will, De exorcismis et supplicationibus quibustam. Um, so if you want to, you can get a, a, a copy of that. It has been translated into English. But if you contact the Vatican, you're going to need a letter from your bishop saying that you're authorized to get it. Um, maybe just what that's actually about is, do you even know Latin? I <laughs> Could, that could be one question, but it is in my local library, so maybe we can look it up. Anyway, fun times. Um, so I think that's uh, that's an interesting moment here that we have this. Uh, we have a, a big theological distinction of what evil looks like in the movie. We've got bad stuff, and then we've got really bad stuff. It yeah. might be a matter of degree. could be all we're really talking about here. Um, but there is a kind of disjunction, I would say, um, between those two things. And I found that interesting because it raises that larger question we keep asking in this podcast about what does it mean to demonize people when you take that turn and you say uh maybe from you know sin ordinary sin to evil in a kind of ultimate sense what does that do to your relationship to other human beings what does that do to your um theology what does that do to your philosophy your outlook on the world all of those things so another favorite moment for me um is the latin slash Persian pictogram. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I have no idea what a Persian pictogram would look like if it if it bit me. So, like, me, who knows? But I can speak a little bit to the Latin that's here. Invocamos te ut ingrediaris ab infernis. I think it's supposed to say, um, we call upon you so that you might enter from out of heaven. But it's sort of awkward Latin, as one francophone comment uh commenter in i don't know some subreddit i was in about this um mentioned from out of hell right you said from out of heaven it's from out of oh hell. sorry sorry well <laughs> let me try again because then i really i i messed it up worse than the original um okay so invocamos te ut ingrediaris ab infernis we call upon you so that you might enter from out of hell um but it's sort of weird that you would say enter from i'm in the translation that ingrediaris ab infernis is sort of a weird construction but whatever, it maybe they meant to say agrediaris. That would have. I'm sure they sense. got a really top-rate classic I'm scholar sh- to do this. Like you know, obviously, instead of like putting did. it into Google Translate or something, you know. Right. Exactly. Although 1999, don't know that Google Translate could have helped you with. This Latin, is 2013, but... 14. So. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Wow, we are in the future. Yes, that is most certainly what happened. So, 
we have this phrase and its pictograms um, in the cave in Iraq, in Jimmy Tratner's house, in Sarchi's house, in the basement of the Italian family where they found Griggs's body. We're getting into heavy plot details here that we didn't go over, and at the zoo. So in short, what you need to know is it's kind of all over this movie. And yeah. as Klaus mentioned, this is the sort of portal, if you will, um, to, I think this particular demon um, because we don't see evidence of other kinds of possession, do we? Well, I mean, they. I think what they say is that I don't think it's the same demon like in the woman in who's locked up who bites his arm. Uh, what's her name? Oh, it, it yeah. Is, I think it's just supposed to be like Jane Crenna. Yeah, um, Jane. Mm-hmm. Jane, the, the woman who threw her child into the lion's den. Okay. She, like she's possessed by a demon. I think it's supposed to be like just like letting demons in willy nilly. Like I don't think they're all they're not all him. They're not all the jungler. You know there can there can only be one. You know. So, yeah. Uh, I think it's it's about like right letting various demons in. So in the but scene again confusing because it like sort of seems yeah. like it's talking to a particular person in that that Latin formula, but like yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when Mendoza is explaining all of this to Sarchi, he's like, the Latin here refers to providing a gateway or portal, um, implying that that word is in the Latin. It's definitely not there, but who cares? Then you hear the doors again, which is all over this movie. The doors like start playing on the jukebox. And then uh, Sarchi goes, so these messages, they're references to doors. And you're like, can we be more heavy handed with the doors? Yeah. Music? And the song and is then... break on through to the other side from their right. first album. And that, that song appears throughout the movie. It's like heavy-handed motifs, yeah. just like beating you over the head like a cop interrogating you in this Bronx precinct. Like, yeah. Sure. Um, and then there's the scene from where they're discussing the, the radar, as it were, um, of Sarchi that his partner, uh, Butler, talks about. They joke about it. Um, and it's, again, a scene between Mendoza is talking to Sarchi. Um, and they're talking about the radar and um, Mendoza says, maybe you've been called into the work. Sarchi says, the work? Yeah, and if you have, I feel sorry for you, man. Hey, don't feel sorry for me. You're the one who took a vow for celibacy. But um, but for me, the other than the corny joke, the reason to note this scene is the reference to the work and to calling this the work because that is what people in Opus Dei call their organization, if, you know, among themselves for shorthand, because of course it means the work of God, mm-hmm. which used to, by the way, just mean prayer. Just like, yeah, right. Oh, well, whatever. Um, but here it gets translated in this particular way. And it makes me wonder if we're trying to reference any kind of, you know, internal Roman Catholic organizations, or if that's totally, um, yeah, accident. I mean, I think that there's probably something to that. I'm not sure if Sarchi, the real Sarchi's in Opus Dei, but like, he's part of this movement and I've seen this with other NYPD, ex-NYPD people of like get it really into pre-Vatican II traditionalist Catholic communities and um, I don't think those are all exactly the same thing as Opus Dei for sure but like they are like sort of related or it's not a far leap from one to the other. Sure. Okay, so Klaus, those were some of my favorite moments from the film. What struck you as interesting? Well, I want to stick with Father Mendoza. You mentioned how in the the lines from the script, how like, oh, you don't feel sorry for me. You took a vow of celibacy. The film makes like this really bizarre point about showing Mendoza checking out women like all the time and flirting. Mm-hmm. And so we get this 
this sense that this like this priest is like more than just like a chaste like duty bound person like he's like he's got demons um and we get this because like we see him in early scenes like like uh working out really hard he's like really he's like the toughest man in the world then he goes for like a run in the rain and he's sweating and he's like oh i need like he like bar- bursts into a bar and he's drinking whiskey like you know um, so he's like, he's, 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 he's a tortured soul who just works out and drinks whiskey. Yeah. But um, he's also, his desire for women, I think is also really key. It helps him bond with Sarchi because, oh, like, don't worry. I'm not like in any way weird in my sexuality, even though I'm celibate, like don't, you know, accuse, yes, don't think yeah. that I'm like secretly gay or a child molester or anything that's like an inch away from the norm. I think that's important too. Yeah. And it's also part because like, it's a, it, they both have to have a confession scene to each other. Like that's part yeah. of how Sarchi yep. gets initiated into the work and how Mendoza like builds trust by going first. But what Mendoza confesses is that he is a narcotics addict. Like, Good thing you're drinking whiskey all the time, man. Like that's like, there's not gonna be a problem with that. Like there's <laughs> no. a really clear, like, like thick line between abusing alcohol and abusing other drugs anyway. Um, but he confesses to Sarchi that he relapsed in his narcotics addiction with a woman he was like ministering to i think also in like demon related stuff and that they they like they uh, entered into an inappropriate relationship and so sarchi is confessing about another confession he made about this return to drugs and his uh like sexual victimization of this woman like his like sort of abusive abusive i mean abusive but like definitely inappropriate and definitely like really over the line pastorally kind of a relationship with this with this person under the influence of drugs so like you could construe that as just like straight up abuse he confesses this to another priest and he expects to be defrocked and the other priest is like no big deal man (laughs) um and i think like the line is really interesting too. He says, uh, the, the priest who doesn't defrock uh, Mendoza says, a saint is not a moral exemplar. He's a giver of life, end quote. Which is all the more strange because Mendoza actually fathers a child with this person with whom he's having this like coercive, manipulative re- relationship. Like he literally like is part of the, the giving of life in this, you know, through the sexual act. But there's this sense that like power trumps morals. Like Mendoza has like this sort of spiritual juice. So it doesn't matter if he's abusing his office through these coercive sexual relationships. Um, So that stood out to me. Like Mendoza's part of an organization that values power and sort of professional solidarity over like actually enforcing its own moral code. That seemed like significant. Sarchi's confession is about how he beats a child molester to death with his bare hands. How he could have gotten away with this is like, with like a police shooting, like it's a bit easier, I mean, easy, like in relative terms here to like frame that, like beating someone to death in cold blood with your hand. Like I don't like, there's, there's no explanation as to how he's able to just sort of like be walking around free and have no repercussions for that. But like, it also fits with the idea that he like, has like this huge like he fucks up massively and like the, the hierarchy he's part of which in this case is the nypd is like oh guess you just beat that guy to death as a vigilante no big deal you're like you're still working the streets 
But yeah, so I think in both cases, in their in both of their confessions, you see they're supposed to be these tortured individuals, and it's supposed to be about all of them. But what the sh- the film implies, deliberately or not, leaning towards not, is that they're both enabled by these organiz- these powerful all like these sort of male dominated organizations in in their sort of uh, claim on power. Okay, so I think it's fair to say that we both found these films to be a bit lacking in the in their aesthetic success. Like they didn't quite pull it off. And I think it's worth asking like what about them makes them not great movies and how that relates to their genre confinements. So I wonder like how explicit demonization of criminals actually hurts these films. The criminal in police thrillers is always already the antagonist in like a good versus evil struggle so to take the extra step of being like and he's the devil is like almost redundant <laughs> like so like that's that's one thing that like you're, it's being overdetermined, and you wonder what's the payoff of like demonizing an already demon demonic figure the serial killer in you know this sort of different subgenre is creepier because this the inner life of the serial killer is supposed to be this like completely incommensurate void compared to the expectations social and moral of normal people the emptiness the inner void of the serial killer is like this absence that sort of provokes almost at the uncanniness on the part of the audience like you're like looking and with the serial killer there's like this ontological gap between like the viewer the victims and the serial killer you don't have to show the serial killer possessed by a demon like you know these movies are using like sort of pop like science pop psychology to sort of describe this sort of ontologically different completely different like sub-functional human being and less is more like that's actually kind of creepier we can and there's a whole other set of things to be said about the serial killer like as a secularized kind of demon in these films but just to sort of as a comparison with these demon cop procedural films less is more and like making the ser- making the villain already a, like again a demon like seems like to be redundant by demonizing the criminal and the cop film the whole thing becomes just like overweighted you unmask the villain it's like the devil or it's a demon and we're like okay and yes it's a bad guy he was already the devil functionally so what does this even get us that's why it's so hilariously underwhelming in Deliver Us From Evil when the Jesuit priest Mendoza finally gets the possessed Santino to reveal his true name. And it's like, the jungler. What even is the jungler? <laughs> is he a juggalo? Is he an insane clown posse fan? Is this more Latin Persian pictogram mishmash? Like, what is the jungler? <laughs> The world may never know, Klaus. Um, the world may never know. <laughs> yeah. Making the devil into the villain of the cop film means the cop can't really save the day as a cop. Like, that's another problem in these films, I think. We see this in End of Days when Jericho shoots the devil up in a subway scene that's really reminiscent of parts of Taking a Pelham 123. Or, like, it's like the part in Terminator 2 when the Arnold's Terminator can't just shoot his way out of the situation with Robert Patrick's T-1000 liquid metal Terminator. And so when Jericho needs to defeat the devil in End of Days, the film just, we'll say, 
we'll say generously, borrows the self-sacrifice trope from the exorcist mm-hmm. when Father Damien lets the demon possess him and then throws himself out the window and down all those steps into the Georgetown night. Arnold just does that, only he jumps onto the very real sword of a statue of St. Michael. Like, have you ever seen a statue with, like, a real sword? No, in it, like it doesn't make any sense <laughs> at all. I'm just like, what? this is awfully convenient. Yeah, so functionally, Arnold, even though he doesn't join a paramilitary Opus Dei demonologist sect like Sarchi, he functionally becomes the priest. His, like, tough guy gun stuff doesn't really cut it. And this is also true in Deliverance from Evil. Doof, Sarchi can't beat a confession out of the possessed Santino, and he can't perform the exorcism alone. By the end of the movie, he retires from the NYPD and becomes a full-time demonologist. He's existing in the gray zone, in the interstices between police and priest. But this fact that the cop as cop can't beat the devil sort of shoots these films in the foot. It makes all the action seem sort of pointless. Like, it was just like sort of a sideshow leading up to the kind of exorcism confrontation that's like the real, the real power struggle. Both films pose the theodicy question. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? And the answer that Father Mendoza gives Sarchi and Doof can stand in for both films. God isn't just absent or sadistically torturing the lives of, of Sarchi or Mendoza or especially Jericho Cain. God is actually really present in the hearts of brave men who stand against evil. He's in the hearts of all those first responders who risk their lives for people they don't even know. This is Mendoza's line of reasoning. And it's a line of reasoning I see studying blue masses for police offered in Catholic churches and in meditations that there's a kind of real presence or preferred conduit of the, of the, of the Holy Spirit in the, the sort of actions and personas of first responders. So like taking that from these films, you see like the white cop action hero is God's spiritual vehicle for world salvation. Um, and I think even as the, the films like sort of in an interesting way do try to deal with the theodicy problem, like both figures are kind of cynical about God, like Arnold's mad at God and Sarchi's indifferent about God. They try to answer the question and the, the, the answer is like, oh, like God's working through you and all your action hero glory. But of course that answer, I think the answer to that question, the theodicy question is, is just as troubling that like the guy with a gun who enforces white supremacy like is is the the conduit of divine justice and agency in the world. So yeah, th- those are just some some thoughts on the the uh, the challenges that this, this this sort of genre mashup experiences. Yeah, Klaus, I wanted to return to this idea of the demonic criminal and why it fails. Um in these two movies, what what is supposed to happen when we unmask the criminal and reveal, you know, Scooby-Doo style that it's somehow not just Mr. So-and-so from down the street, but actually Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is that supposed to do? And I would say it's supposed to connect us to a theodicy that gives some sort of reason for why terrible things happen. Some sort of rationale like, oh, this person just doesn't commit things willy-nilly or out of a self-interest that doesn't seem to quite makes sense. There's got to be an underlying reason for all of this terrible stuff in the world. Here it is at Satan. We've got good versus evil, a Manichaean kind of dualist worldview, and that's supposed to do some sort of explanatory work. Um, So part of my question is, 
is that underlying storyline that we're supposed to get at about a kind of Manichaean worldview ultimately what's unsatisfying to us? Um, mm -hmm. one, one possible take. What do you think? Yeah, I think the way you just put it, like it reminds me of the orthotaxy work where it's about seeing these conflicts in politics and culture and organizing them into mm -hmm. a coherent like spectrum of of like sort of orders and ranks and and then like using that as a way to narrate these this apocalyptic confrontation between good and evil. Um, so I was, was drawn back to that. Absolutely. And to that end, I feel like the films could have been more enjoyable if even just going for that a little bit more, we could have seen a more developed mythology, some like esotericism here and there beyond these like mm -hmm. little gestures. And I know my standard for that is pretty high as a historian of Christianity. So like fine. But I think right. we could have at least had some fun um, with more texture to that. Um, the other thing, when you were talking about the kind of... Um, mashup between cop versus priest and that's really important idea of the kind of mixing of roles and genres and what the implications are for that around church and state etc and our i kind of um especially in an american context um what all of that looks like and why this why else this might be unsatisfying it also brought to mind the figure of melchizedek um, who is interpreted by Christians as a as a prefiguration rather of Christ himself, um, who is invoked as both priest and king, as an unusual mix in the Hebrew Bible of these two normally quite separate mm -hmm. lineages. That just might be something else to think about, both in the Hebrew Bible, but also Jesus as like somehow, or Christ really, not, not Jesus, but Christ as um, mixing two otherwise incongruous roles together. What that might bring to light about a Christology that's hidden sort of behind the surface of this. Um, what does that say uh, theologically and Christologically? If we, if our hero looks like this person who's not only offering himself safe in self-sacrifice in a Christ-like move, but also as this kind of person who is allied with secular power, what are we doing here? Yeah. I think about this all the time. Yeah. Like, like how the sacralization of, state violence and law enforcement, right, like is blurring these boundaries between like church and state and and like how relevant that distinction even is in in this kind of world, in the world that is imagined by these movies and, and I think increasingly in a world of uh, right-wing Christian jurisprudence in the Supreme Court and and like the, yeah, like the, the, the sort of a kind of conservative discourse about the police right. too, um, and you, you know, of course, Arnold is literally crucified in End of I Days. Know, I know. <laughs> so I mean, like, just a, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, and then but... Longinus' spear in the form of Saint Michael's sword. Yeah, I mean, all of it. It's so much. Um, yeah. Finally, just a note on Christian masculinities, I suppose, because we've got the tough guy who ultimately lays down his arms in the in the form of Jericho Cain who lays down his arms and is sacrificed in a very sort of obviously um, Christological parallel right but only at the end right we have a Christian warrior right up until the very end where that's sort of insufficient and it does not to me read like any kind of critique of his method before both seem really necessary for the salvation of the world etc um so just wondering about what 
turning then to Doof, I suppose, what would you say about the forms of, we've got this bromance really at the center of it. What would you, what are your notes yeah. on the kind of gender performances that we see? Um, I would also extend that to his sidekick who gets killed, um, Joel McHale, um, with his backwards mm -hmm. cap and his, you know, his tats trying to bro it up um, quite a bit here. What would you say about the importance of gender roles in these films and what it means to sort of uh, serve, uh, protect and serve in a way that um, pushes on um, a kind of Christian warrior theme? What would you say? I mean, the first thing I think of is that they're both like these kind of failed would-be family men. Mm. Uh, Jericho Cain's family's killed. He's not there to stop them. Why did God emasculate him like that? You know, that's like the real th formation. That's like the way the theodicy question is being form formulated in this movie. Why did God emasculate me in this way that I lost my, you know, my possessions, my most prized possessions, my wife and child? And I use the word possessions, in, you know, intentionally because I think it sort of reflects the patriar patriarchal logic of the whole thing. Um, in Doof, it's more the case that after beating the pedophile to death with his bare hands, uh, Sarchi's character is alienated from his wife and child. And he's sort of like grumpy with his daughter and he's distant from his wife. Um, and so meanwhile, he's also being traumatized and shocked by finding like dead babies. And like, if you ever look through the real Sarchi's uh, Beware the Night, he uses uh, like you know, the fact that he finds, like, uh, dead newborns or aborted fetuses, like, like that sort of, he uses that as, like, a way of almost bridging between primary and secondary evil, the way you're talking about. But it also links into, like, the gender role of the, you know, cis-patriarchal cis hetero family defender that he, that, that sort of role. Like, he's horrified by all these dead babies. Uh, it, it's, it's racialized in a very particular way in Beware the Night, like, where he's, he, you know, he's, He's he's like like saying like oh like I'm, I'm witnessing these scenes of like like sort of the most disturbing negligence and cruelty and he's always talking about like people of color in, in those cases so but like it's it's about like like being this sort of white patriarch who is not only safeguarding the social order but also of course like his own his own his own sort of legitimacy and purity as as the patriarch yeah. Interesting then to think about the conclusion of the film as the baptism scene, right? In the church. Yes. No, no accident, I would say. Yeah. Oh, not in a church. Oh, right. Though, right. In their in home. His kitchen. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> gosh. That was super weird. I was like, who, like no one. Uh, I guess also sort of gesturing at like a kind of anti mainstream Catholicism, a kind of, yeah, covert splinter cell catholicism well, i, I think know. it's yeah. sacralizing the home is part of what it does right because we're yeah. moving out of that yeah. you know institutional church and into you know oh it's the family is the locus of you know true catholicism in some way you've got this you know family giving yeah. life and a baby and all the rest so right yeah no right, no right, community right, right. necessary <laughs> don't worry about it and it also applies to mendoza because in this in the exorcism scene the jungler is like your baby son is still alive and I will have him. And so like, again, the Mendoza, the priest father, he's not just, you know, father Mendoza, he's Mendoza, the father. <laughs> and that, and like, that's the most horrifying moment for Mendoza that the, the jungler is going to is going to scrawl some Latin graffiti on the wall and come and take over his baby or whatever. But again, yeah. Patriarchy 
is is under a siege by all this graffiti. Right. Is is, is something. Mendoza's <laughs> sexuality is so it cuts both ways in that scene because of course it's like it normalizes him. You know, he's the cool priest who like likes women, you know. <laughs> um and he he's manly enough to father a child, but he's also that's his vulnerability because of course that's against the um his vow of celibacy that he's supposed to be following so he's a failure in a sense as well but at least he's you know a super mask the movie failure. is so weird they show him like flirting at the bar like multiple times like oh checking God. out with, like it is so so over the top and it, it, in a way that for me is unique for a representation of a of a catholic cleric in a film like you see them tortured, you see them tempted, but you don't see. He just, he's just like, he's not even tempted. He's just like going for it. <laughs> oh, so funny. Okay, so you know we're doing, we're talking about these movies like by coincidence, basically in the wake of these uh, mass shootings that have happened in May of 2022 in Buffalo in Uvalde, and I, like I wanted to bring that in. Uh, not just to be relevant, but I think like the way politicians on the right have been talking about why they can't regulate guns usually goes back to a claim made about the spiritual nature of evil. Lauren Boebert said like you can't legislate evil away, like it like so the by implication you, laws that you would pass to limit assault weapons would have no impact on evil because evil is spiritual, not material and can't be affected by legislation. But I'm like, these are the same people who are trying to make abortion illegal. So like that legislation, legislating that, that quote unquote evil away is, is okay. But so anyway, there's been a lot of talk about the nature of evil in the wake of these shootings. And I felt like these, these films sort of go there a little bit in terms of thinking about how evil is manifested, how it's represented. And I I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about like where we see, like how much utility we see in the concept of evil at this point. Like we've been doing this podcast for a while. We think about and talk about evil a lot. Uh, And it's something that is a, a politicized concept at this point. And I wonder like how, where are you at with this idea? Like, how do you want to talk about evil or do you, or is it something that you find like not useful to use to talk, to sort of think about these things? Like what, I'm wondering just like, what, where are you at with that? I think one important point is that in public discourse, we don't have a shared understanding of what counts as evil. If we do, it looks like things that people generally agree are wrong, but there's something extra about it. And usually that something extra is that it's inexplicable. The motivation is very unclear. We can't really explain this bad thing that a person has done using any of our sciences. And I mean that in the medieval sense, any of our fields of knowledge, right? There's not really an explanation that is that has to do with mental health, right? For one. Uh, well, sometimes they do, but it's a way of being like, oh, this isn't a gun problem. It's a mental health problem. Like, and it's funny how mental health and, and spiritual evil are, are like analogs there. It's like, it's not physical. It's mental or spiritual. And, and, and yeah, so just to say, like, you you will see people say it is a conservative talking point to be like, we can't talk about guns. We have to talk about mental health as they slash the health care budget, you know, like. Well, exactly. And also like this using the category flatly like that to suggest somehow that 
I mean, we are in the midst, let's just say the words, we're in the midst of a mental health epidemic that this country has never seen before, particularly in young people. And so to say, to draw some sort of, and that's affecting millions upon millions of people. And what we're talking about is the incredibly rare instance of people shooting up schools, for example, mass shootings. I think that that is just unsatisfactory to almost everyone as explaining what happens. Just saying saying the words mental health just obviously does not do it. Um, so it's tempting to use, to sort of gesture beyond what we can think or imagine and say, oh, it's evil. And for some people that will conjure up a very specific theology that is um, satisfying to them in some way to say, there are these two forces at war here and I'm on the side of the right and occasionally evil things are going to happen, but there's this war and I'm part of it. And we're in the midst of conversations about um, the solution from the left looks like gun control and legislation that limits the weapons that cause these things. And while, of course, I have, I want that to happen, <laughs> um, I think that is a great start. I will say that it's not a complete solution. It doesn't explain anything at all, really, about why the things, other than, um, yes, that the events are, could not happen without certain kinds of weapons. That is certainly true. No one's really contesting that. Others are invested in the rights of people to own those weapons for whatever reasons they have. Um, but no one's actually explaining uh, on either side that I have heard um, convincingly why someone could do something that universally is a nightmare, universally is the most awful thing a person could do. Um, and so I guess that's my interest in this category of evil, Klaus. Um, it is code for what we can't talk about, what we can't name. There's a certain sort of even there could be a certain apophatic quality to evil. Um, the privative notion of evil kind of coming down to us in this form saying, this is beyond our words. This is beyond, we can only gesture toward um, this thing that we ultimately really don't understand at all. What do you think about evil? Well, I feel like it's so weird because like, I feel like if it's that kind of apophatic theology, like it's not just about the transcendence because in theology, apophasis is about like how radically transcendent the divine object is. But I think like the problem with uh, thinking about that with evil is that a lot of the conditions for violence in this country come from historical systems that are were being outlawed to be spoken of. Like, so the idea that the the sort of the use of firearms and the availability of firearms and the quote unquote gun culture of the United States has anything to do with uh, the genocide of indigenous peoples, which it, it does. I mean, like the, like the, the quote unquote gun culture in the second amendment. And I hear I'm, I'm leaning on uh, Ruth Dunbar, Ortiz's work in the book loaded. Like this is, this isn't just an accident or something just like sort of like some freak cultural thing about the United States. It's about like how, quote unquote, the West was won and it was, you know, the, the, the sort of expanding frontier and it was through irregular warfare between militias and independent families, uh, like clearing territory with, with firearms. And I, so like, you know, and also for controlling black people and for, for hunting slaves and for keeping Jim Crow enforced. So like un until you're able to talk about the stolen land and the genocide and the racial, the sort of the racial legacy of all that, like, 
I think uh, it's it's pretty hard. Yeah, like I, I agree. Like um, every you know, regulating guns would be a great start. But like until the sort of the the deeper problems are are, are addressed, I, I, I yeah, it's it, that's like that. Those things seem to be what what's really lacking and uh, what would help us understand why these things happen. Because like unlike the divine, like I think there are answers to those questions. Like we can explain why people's lives are made desperate and violent through the immiseration of this capitalist settler colony. I mean, like, it's not a mystery. <laughs> and that's for me, that that's the point of when the conservatives go to the evil spirit slash mental health logic, it's to make it mysterious. It's like, who could do, what could make you do such a thing? And I just think like, that's not the right question. As if it's like something just purely inside these people, like the, all the causes are just inside of them. It's like, what world produces this is, is a better question. And um, that, that for me, and for me, like, that's why I think that I do still use the idea of evil. I think evil as a name for like an individualized, personalized representation of evil is counterproductive morally and politically. Uh, if the category has any use at all, it's in naming self-reproducing systems of violence. And evil is the name for those systems and for the self-deception they produce and feed off of, you know, like banning curricula that deal with the history the actual history of this country for for starters and i don't think like saying like oh it's evil's a system not a person is like a cheap way out if we just keep thinking about evil as scary bad guys the plot of that story pulls us towards killing the bad guys and the world is supposed to be regenerated by that sacred violence and does anyone see any regeneration happening in the world we live in like it doesn't work and so like that kind of plot itself is part and parcel of the self-deception of this cultural system that you could call evil, I would say. Um, so again, like, yeah, in some ways it's like, I think like, you know, typical left wing to be like, look at the system, look at the history, look at the context, look at the material conditions. But I do think like there is something that plays with the the passions and the affects to call it evil. It makes, it gives you some sort of normative skin in the game to be like, this isn't just something that you can describe. It's something that you could do something about. And I think for me, that's also why, it's a useful word still, even if it's mostly mostly abused, I would say. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said entirely and would say that um, one of the things I really like about thinking about evil in this way, um, I've, I've tended to think about um, some of these forces. For example, it's pretty easy for me to think about racism as evil. Um, I've what I've liked about that approach to thinking about evil as um, part of social and cultural forces um, is that it also offers hope in this sense. When you think about evil as the bad guy, right, you have very few options other than eliminating the bad guy or containing the bad guy, something that I have no, uh, that first of all, just doesn't work as you It's, so, it's like it's genocidal logic. It's like eliminate yes, exactly. you know, the other, you know. Right, which is, which is itself, of course, uh, in our um, in our parlance, then part of evil, right? Genocide, building on that sort of structural critique um, and thinking structurally about evil. So what I like about thinking in this way is that it offers hope because it offers the possibility of collective action of communities rising up together and saying, here's how we can move forward. Here's how we can correct the culture. Here's how we can um, together point to ways that are life-affirming, to ways that are... Um, 
that stand against violence, that stand against um, systematic evils uh, baked into our society that we have participated in historically and continue to do um, that you've pointed to the end. Yeah. And we've talked about this before too. Uh, we had an episode from around like the 2020 election about demoni- demonization. And we looked at Dolores Williams's idea of demonarchy and like, there is like resources for this in Christian theology to be like, it's less about pointing to the scary demon and more about pointing to systems that, cr- that perpetuate hierarchies of inequality that are lethal for most of the people trapped in the hierarchies and like that's how she reads demonarchy it's about de- the de- the daimon or the, the demon is like the, the being that's elevated above the human being in the form of white white supremacy um so I, I do think like that it isn't it also doesn't evacuate this stuff of its traditional uh re- sort of roots and, and and anchorings like i think it's it can still be there I also like the way that it um, brings together in an interesting way to me, primary and what we were talking about um, in Mendoza's distinction between primary and secondary evil, the scholar Mendoza. And it's a distinction that was, it's actually from the preface to the book of Beware the Night. I think it's in the Mm -hmm. bishop who wrote the preface to Beware the Night. So just let me, yeah, but go ahead, go ahead. And that I ultimately find so problematic you can't disentangle um, what humans do from the concept of evil. Like that's a dangerous, I, I think that that's not good. This is the quote from uh, Beware the Night, by the way. This is what Sarchi writes. As Joe Forrester, my partner in spiritual investigation, so eloquently says, two different types of evil exist. Primary evil, which comes from the devil, and secondary evil, which is the evil that people do. Although all evil stems from the devil, I am not always quick to blame the devil for the nasty deeds that one human being can inflict on one another. I know the difference between human and inhuman evil when I see it. <laughs> I'm so glad that that distinction is, is clear for him um, and presumably for all of us that we don't need to worry about it. What I like about um, thinking about evil as infecting our social systems is that we bear some responsibility as communities for um, finding solutions, finding healing, finding hope and love together, that it guards against the logics that lead to violence against particular people as a solution to, in some cases, violence, which of course makes no sense. It also guards against our blaming some sort of exterior spiritualized force um, in lieu of finding the culprits, again, not as particular bodies, but as um, ideas that exist that we cultivate in our culture. And until we are able to see the problems where they are, we're not going to be able to stop these kinds of acts of horror. Yeah, and I think like there is the cultural dimension of evil, and I think the cultural dimension is in close relationship with the social and material dimension, which is like real hierarchies and real inequalities that that exist and sort of like create the structure of our existence. And so it is both a way of thinking, but it's also like the sort of just the everyday arrangement of reality that we experience through through. Uh, gross inequality and through the, you know, sort of, you know, everything that goes along with that. So yeah, it isn't just about like changing hearts and minds and just, you know, like, like sort of changing the culture, you know, culture reset. Like it, it's going to be like very to, to sort of actually do something about 
the, the real evils that infect our world, like there's going to have to be a lot of change to very sort of mundane and very everyday and very pressing forms of resource distribution and and caretaking for communities. And so it's, 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 and I think for me, that's what's inspiring about still using this word is it's, it's an invitation to actually be involved in stuff and to try to do the real work of organization to create a better world and imagine a better world. Yeah, I didn't mean to suggest, of course, that culture was somehow divided from our material realities or the structures of power that we are part of, just that in order to um, get to collective action, we have to talk about these ideas um, because we're competing against a paradigm that says there are bad guys, we can shoot them, and that will solve all of our problems. Well, that's all for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, Klaus, I think we've solved all of the problems in America, and As we've usual. reconceptualized evil using these two films in a way that will be satisfying to all of our listeners, I'm sure. Yes. What, you know, no one could have any critiques of this, and it's perfect. Um, no notes, no notes. Yeah. No notes from everyone. Um, but stay tuned, because we're going to be continuing our sinful summer film series um, and with with titles yet to be announced. So you'll get to be surprised just as we will be surprised next <laughs> time. We surprise each other. You tune in. We surprise each other. So, so thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you. Thank you.